Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we're talking about how to be less busy and have more impact. And to lead this conversation, I am joined by acclaimed simplicity coach, author, TEDx speaker, and fellow minimalist, Chris Lovett, for a second time. I first spoke with Chris back in episode 107 titled Own Less and Live More, where we discuss insights from his best-selling book titled Discovery of Less, how I found everything I wanted underneath everything I own. In Discovery of Less, Chris details how he let go of most of his possessions, sold his home, and left a stable job to travel more and design a simpler life. And it was through his travels that he stumbled across minimalism and began to let go of more things and unlearn social norms about how he should be living. By the time he returned home, he had achieved his mission of adopting what he calls a less ordinary, happier life. However, he soon felt the burden of another area of excess, mental clutter. His new professional life quickly became busy and cluttered. And as any minimalist would do, he stepped back from the chaos and asked himself, how can I use minimalism in the workplace? And how can I do less and have more impact at work? And after experimenting in his new work environment, Chris eventually cracked the code, and today he shares his learnings with talented people around the world to help them work less and create better results. And in our discussion today, you will learn about the habits you can adopt to reclaim control over your busy work life and the benefits that come with doing less and more focused work. Be inspired to start simplifying your work life so that you can stop being the busiest person in the room and start being the most impactful and productive one. The first time we spoke, we we spoke about your first book. You shared your story and you also talked about all the benefits that you've gained from removing all that excess stuff from your life. And today we're going to go one step further and talk about how we can apply our shared less is more mindset to our professional lives. And I think it's fascinating that this is your focus today. And I think it's really, really a good time for it as well, because we're living in this busy and chaotic work culture. And it's like, how can I apply my minimalist lifestyle or the principles of this lifestyle to my work life? So I'm really excited to get into it today. Yeah, likewise. And uh, thanks for having me back on. It doesn't feel like two years, but here we go, the sequel. Exactly. And I should tell our listeners, if you haven't listened to our first episode yet, definitely go back. It's one of our most downloaded episodes. And Chris, I honestly believe it's because you're such a good interviewee, but also your story is amazing and it's super relatable and motivating. So I'm excited to share the extension of your story today. So can you share the experiences that initially inspired you to explore minimalism at work and how you began to challenge the hustle culture that we live in today? Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Um, it is an interesting one, and uh, it does go back to the the original story of just generally decluttering my house, and that whole journey that you can listen to in in that episode that we recorded a couple of years ago. But during that kind of transition, I did wonder around my work life because it was significantly different from the life that I'd created in my kind of personal context, you know, which was minimized. It was simplified. It was definitely less, but better. But I'd go back into work and it would be the opposite. <laughs> I was like, is there is there any way I can have a connection 
here. And it basically started by me trying to implement some of those minimalist principles that we kind of uniquely create for ourselves into a kind of knowledge worker corporate type setting. And um, I kept being given work that I had that gut feeling that it wasn't very valuable, but the people around me just went and did it anyway, because we'll, I'm sure we'll go into it later, but the kind of psychology of how our, our default behaviors and the, the kind of status quo that mm-hmm. that safe comfort zone that we operate in I was a little bit more disruptive at that time um we, so we're looking around 2018 2019 time after I'm properly labeled myself a minimalist and started writing a book but this whole work thing came out as well so I just stopped doing pieces of work just to see what happened and it was it felt a bit brave because I was like oh if I'm I was a new person in an organization as well. And I thought, what I can do is I can I can use that label to get away with stuff. I'm new, so I don't know the rules and, you know, let me play around with it. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I stopped doing bits of work just to see what the impact would be. And people just forgot about it. So there'd be like reports or, you know, uh, you know I, this, is, this is the classic one. I won't go into too much detail because it's really boring. I had to write a risk report about an old risk report and I was, like, I was like, is this is this really the best use of my time, my skills, my talent? So I just stopped doing it. I didn't tell anyone. You know, I didn't tell my boss or I didn't tell my team. I just I just stopped doing it just to see what happened. No one chased me up on it. And months went by and eventually years went by and no one mentioned it. And I was like, what else can I do here to utilize this kind of minimalist lifestyle at work? And so I started asking more questions around what does this, what is the purpose of this? You know, how much value does it add? And once I asked those types of questions, people started to get a bit, not defensive, but a bit like, oh, it's just what we do. It's just the Mm. way we've always done it. And so because I was the new guy, I felt that I had a responsibility to put some fresh eyes on stuff. So I really kind of challenged people's current workload and their behaviors and things like that. And here we are today. Now, you know, going out to, different organizations and talking about using minimalism or professional minimalism to simplify people's working lives because right now kelly i don't know what it's like in in canada but in the uk we've just hit a, a 10-year high in regards to sickness from work due to stress overworking is a huge symptom that we are struggling with at the moment and um i don't know if you've seen the the world health organization as but some studies out recently that around three quarters of a million people are dying per year due to uh, heart disease and um, stroke caused by overworking, which is more per year than malaria. Mm. And when you start looking at the stats and you're like, kind of, how have we got ourselves into this mess? And um, so, yeah, so I now go out and connect that first day of decluttering when I put my foot in a CD case yes. <laughs> to where we are today um to kind of helping kind of corporate teams and, and work teams you know simplify their their working lives I think it's pretty admirable that you were able to come into a new organization and take that risk to say hey I have a set of new ideas I have a way of challenging what you're doing to create better results in this organization and I'm sure that there was some type of pushback But at the same time, I love the fact that you're like, hey, this is not important. This is less essential. This is more essential. And so you're able to do less, but create better results. 
Now, I just, I just think that's fascinating. And I, I think that, as you said, with the WHO, the World Health Organization coming out with saying, hey, you know, people are dying from burnout. There's a definition mm-hmm. for it. It's like death by overwork, you said yeah. in one of your yeah, talks. Yeah, yeah. And it's very scary. And it's, it's a hustle culture still. And we talk about how some leaders are changing. And yes, I recognize that some leaders around the world are changing their ways. And there's more maybe flexibility at work, but more flexibility doesn't necessarily mean less work. Sometimes it means more. People don't even take vacation. And of course, there are some traditional leaders who are not making change. And so Mm. the question is, is, hey, what can we as managers and employees do to sustain ourselves in these environments? So that's why I think your story is so fascinating. And now I'm curious, when you started doing less, how did you start creating more impact? Or what were some of the initial benefits that you found? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, you can't you can't do less without having some sort of value add, right? So, um, so the time, right? So time, which a lot of people really struggle with at the moment, or this concept of I don't have enough time. In my head, it's never time; it's the behaviors and habits you've formed that time is an outcome. So it's the behaviors and habits you formed over a period of years that then create that time. And I had time back. Right, which almost felt like, oh, I've got credits here. What can I use this time for? I was able to learn more, help more people. Mm. So I helped my colleagues with some of their important stuff that they were actually doing. Whether it was important or not, we don't know. <laughs> I was able to support them and actually work on some of the you know, more higher value stuff that you know us as a team and as an organization were, were looking at, but couldn't always get around to because everyone was just so bogged down in busy work. But being a coach as well, so I went and did a lot of self-investment, becoming a, a multidisciplined coach. And it it taught me the, the value of questions over answers. Mm-hmm. So my my level of curiosity grew, which allowed me to ask really kind of simple but powerful questions. So so things like, what are you basing your decision on? What data do you have? Um, and a lot of leaders and talent that have been in organizations for a long time they use assumptions and beliefs mm-hmm. and make really big decisions that impact lots of you know many people many people's careers even profitability productivity and things like that and so I started to just ask questions and if you ask really good questions you appear mm. way more intelligent than people that just give answers all the time and, and be the expert so there was lots of experts around when I was working there um, but not many people that asked questions Mm. so because I was able to ask questions it made people think differently and so actually things like strategies got massively changed things that a lot of talented people were spending excessive amount of times on that were rubbish bits of work we stopped doing that because you know life moves on really quickly right and we're constantly changing constantly evolving Mm -hmm. but if you're not evolving the way you work you're going to very quickly get left behind Mm-hmm. So a, a high performance culture almost demands continuous innovation, continuous disruption. And that's what I did. Um, and that's what I continue to do as well. So almost like we we as a, as a group then started to value the word no mm. a lot more, which in today's world is a huge skill to have because you can do anything in the world you want, but you can't do everything. So you have to make a choice. You have to prioritize. Um, and sometimes you'll get stuff put onto you by other people other people's agendas will try to take over your your current workload and things like that so you have to be have that ability to 
negotiate and challenge and ask, you know, what is really important right now? You know, I have 15 things already and now you're giving me five more. So which of those five things you originally gave me are now not as important? Yes. And so it almost like, you know, it, you become more of a critical thinker, you become better at prioritizing. And when you have social media, chaos, you've got a million and one things to watch on Netflix, got to be able to choose, right? Uh, so why not have those skill sets at work? I think that some of our listeners are probably thinking, oh, you know, it's not easy for me to say no to my boss Mm. or whoever I report to. But uh, my advice is if you have a few things piling on, you can communicate to those who you report to and say, hey, you know, is this a priority? Because if it's not, I'm going to focus on this another week versus saying no, just like, hey, like, when do you need this? I will speak up more, but I, I didn't before. And in my previous careers back actually 2021. Yeah. But also before that I was burnt out. I was so burnt out because I didn't mm-hmm. speak up. It's so important that you do. And I find that every time I do speak up, I'm more respected by the person that I report to, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 This is, this is a, you know, a belief or a myth that we need to move away from is that if we challenge people and if we state our boundaries that our relationships can get worse in fact it's the opposite the opposite is true and you know this is kind of stuff that i do is helping people to unlearn some of the stuff and the beliefs that we've kind of you know captured over the years and been conditioned to believe and things like that so you know there's 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 lots and lots of research and studies to say that when you dictate your boundaries to someone your relationship grows Mm. because you build that emotional connection and so if I say to you, Kelly, would you be able to help me with this thing that I'm doing? It's going to take about six hours and I need it done tomorrow. If you would say, look, Chris, I'd love to. I really would. Mm-hmm. But I don't have capacity at the moment because I'm already doing another podcast episode. I'm like, no problem whatsoever. Um, maybe I'll come, I'll come back to you another time when you've got a bit more spare time. We don't play the mind reader anymore. You know, we, we know where each other stands. And we have that continued kind of connection. And um, there is some, uh, a recent group of scientists, actually, that did a thing called a year of no. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I love it's that. great. Fantastic bit of research. And if you if you look it up, I think it's behind a bit of a paywall. But if you look on my LinkedIn, I've got a, a little bit that I wrote in the second book, Relentless, which we'll talk about in a minute. I captured their research. So there was three researchers, scientific researchers in did in the US, we had uh, Colorado, Delaware, and somewhere else I can't remember, and one in Australia. So what they would do is they would get together every week and give each other feedback on their work and just discuss what they had on their plate. And because they were so in demand and so uh, so good at what they were doing, of course they got asked to tutor students, to write reports, to do talks, and it was becoming a little bit overwhelming. Mm. So what they did as a joke, as a joke. They said, hey, why don't we say no to 100 pieces of work over a year? And I think in March of 2022, they hit this kind of centennial no and then told people about it, all of what they've discovered. So the first kind of couple of months, they realized that they they felt a bit guilty in saying no to people because they really wanted to help. And people felt that they needed some support in these areas, but but they gave them this these boundaries and said we'd love to but we're already writing a report over here already tutoring your student we, we can't over the course of the next few months they found that their actual work that they were doing got better mm. so because they're scientists the science got better 
because they were saying no to all this other stuff that they could have been doing. And towards the end, they found that the relationships that they had with the people they're saying no to had also got better. So everything was increased. Their well-being got better. Uh, relationships got better. The work they were currently working on got better. And I suppose in a roundabout way, the people that they couldn't help maybe had to help themselves a little bit or were empowered mm. to seek a different path, which if you look at it from a long-term perspective, adds another skill set of self-serving and self-learning, right? Not relying on you know, a an expert to give you the answer all the time. So it's a fantastic study. I'd recommend people to go and have a look at it. But um, but yeah, you know, there's the proof. The proof in the pudding from a bunch of scientists that said no for a year was that their work got better. So, you know, if, if you ever need anything to go back to senior leadership or, you know, or people of higher status in your culture or organisation, say, look, the work I'm currently doing is going to get better if I keep my boundaries up. And I can only imagine that those scientists were also less distracted as well, because they were probably saying no to all the, the other distractions in their lives at, at the same time, because there is usually a ripple effect, which is yeah. interesting. So maybe they weren't as addicted to their phones. Maybe they weren't scrolling on social media or whatever we do on our spare time, right? So they are yeah. more intentional with their time. I'm actually reading a book right now called Boundary Boss by Terry Cole. I don't know if you've heard nice. of it. I've but, oh, oh, every chapter makes me feel more powerful. <laughs> yes, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And that's how this should feel. Um, yes. And it has, has for me, like, you know, the, I kind of, you know, use my personal story, which you kind of know, but like the confidence that I have in sticking to my boundaries and going I'd love to help I'd love to coach 100 people I can't <laughs> I can't I could try but I would be a rubbish coach to all of you but what I can do I can be an incredible coach to 50 mm-hmm. to 50 clients and and you know so maybe in the future I'll pick up everyone else and, and in, in different ways and you know things like that but at this current time my confidence level is increased because I'm able to set those boundaries and I know that my performance starts to dip if I start to take on too much. And of course, we've, we've probably heard of the you know law of diminishing returns, which has been around maybe since the, the kind of Ford factory became a bit of a case study, which I'll, I'll share quickly because yeah. if, if your uh, listeners may be aware of it, but I think with Ford, what they tended to do, they tended to stop people working over 50 hours a week because they were paying too much money on insurance claims because the mistakes kept happening. People would lose a hand or they would get injured. So basically what that accumulated to is like people's ability to concentrate and focus started to diminish after around 45, 50, 55 hours a week. So they just said no more after that because it actually cost us more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they put a cap on overtime, they put a cap on um, working. And the same thing happens in our kind of knowledge worker space and, and corporate space, you know, where people are working ridiculous amount of hours during the day. By the time you get to the end of the day, if you've been in back to that meetings all the time, your ability to make decisions that, again, could impact huge amounts of people and customers and colleagues is, is diminished. It's why Obama only had two color suits. So he didn't have to make big decisions in the morning. Right. So right. he could save that, save that energy for later on in the day when he still needed to attend these really important meetings. So yeah, so law of diminishing returns, again, is another one where we use that research to kind of show people, you know, stop working excessively because right now you may feel that you can do it, but we'll probably see the errors of your judgment in three, six, nine months that you won't pick up, someone else will. Mm -hmm. 
I actually uh, watched a talk by you. Uh, it's TEDx Halt London. And oh, yeah. <laughs> you shared a study by workfront.com that found that 60% of employees' day is wasted on unproductive meetings, excessive emails, and a lack of collaboration. And I was yeah. like, yep, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, it sounds right, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, people come home from work and they're like, oh gosh, I worked 12 hour day. I'm like, but did you actually work 12 hours? You probably only worked X number of hours. And, you know, something that helps me keep on track is, is time blocking my schedule. So I know this hour I'm doing this, this hour I'm doing this, this hour I'm doing this. And when you don't do that, sometimes you can take six hours to do something you could, could have done in two hours. Right. So yeah. it's about being mindful about how you spend your time. But I'm so curious when you're in this new job and you were doing less and you're helping the team create better results and you're able to create the space to help people that you worked with, how was it initially received by those you were reporting to? Uh, were they very open to your ideas? Were they excited? Were they kind of pushing back a little bit? What was it like? It, op- it opened up people's minds to different type of conversation mm. so I think initially you will I probably experienced it as well there is that defensiveness where you're challenging the status your status quo of things that have been happening for for a long time and people can get quite defensive you know you know but this has worked in the past why would we stop doing it what's worked up to this point now but the world's changed so how do we make it better um but I think it was really well received mostly because it just highlighted some of the behaviors and this kind of stuckness that people were feeling. They were just, they weren't getting better. They were just trudging along, just doing stuff that they knew deep down wasn't really adding value, but maybe they didn't have the mechanism or the avenues to really explore how to stop doing it because it was maybe too far disruptive. Um, and I remember uh, an old colleague of mine, another coach, actually, he did something similar and, and he had a report that he would do every month and he would send it out to the stakeholders and he never got too much back. But that particular report took a lot of time to put together, make lovely PowerPoint slides. He'd have to speak to lots of people already who had different access to different systems, put all of his data together and send it off. So he did the same as me. <laughs> he just designed the PowerPoint and then never sent it to anybody just to see who would come back three months later, considering this is a monthly report, three months later, someone come back and goes, are we, do, we, do we still do this? Because there was right. bits in there that were really important. And so it then allowed him to recontract with the stakeholders and go, right, tell me what bits you need and how often you need it. Because mm. you didn't know that it wasn't around for 12 weeks. So clearly, you know, the decisions that you're making in your business weren't impacted by this particular report. So I could save myself a lot of time. I'm working with a client at the moment um, who, again, to try and prove or disprove her assumption and theory, what she would do is she would get loads of requests in her into her team for urgent work. This is urgent. We need it by the end of the day. Or we need it by the end of the week. And she had this feeling that actually not everything was as urgent uh, as, as it was presented. So she put this piece of work together through her team. The team worked all weekend and really got quite highly stressed and didn't get paid for it though just worked for free yeah um and then sent the report around but password protected it and then forgot to send the password out and we just could play dumb and just say oh sorry here's the password for anyone who asked for it and she found that 50 percent of the people that demanded it urgently 
the following week. Didn't get back to her until three to four weeks later. Mm. And so she proved that, again, this this urgency addiction or this urgency attachment, everything needs to be done tomorrow, was false. So it gave her the data to recontract with those stakeholders or those you know managers and kind of go, right, now I know. Tell me exactly what you need, when you need it. Because if we're looking at costs in time, this just costs you £55,000. Wow, this is great. You know, so 10 people working on a project over a weekend in their time, that was how much it cost, where they could have been doing something else. Is it really that valuable? And, oh, I didn't really know that. <laughs> right, so let's, let's, let's kind of negotiate how we're going to be working together in the future. And once you kind of do that, again, relationships get built and they get built better mm-hmm. because, again, you know each other's boundaries and, and things like that. So, so yeah, so that's how it has been received, both from what I did and, and how clients are experimenting with this little bit of bravery. Oh, I love these examples. Now, I'm, I'm curious. So you share how you share the power of saying no. You share how it's important to identify what's essential and non-essential so that we can create more space and protect our own sacred space by setting boundaries. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what are some other habits that you've adopted that have helped you take back control over your chaotic work life? Yeah, so it's behaviors. Mm-hmm. So what I found when first starting to do this, Kelly, was that I looked too much at the practical things, which are great. So things like you were saying about time locking, you know, maybe not looking at emails or for a period of time and then you know putting yourself on do not disturb they're great they're great practical elements that you can implement into your work life straight away mm-hmm. but the habits and the behaviors and the mindset that's where the change happens and what I've learned personally is again I may be used to have an attachment to status because being busy mm. can lend itself to being a bit of a badge of honor right so you look at films that maybe glamorize the hustle culture and you know maybe influencers on social media who glamorize you get up at 5 a.m every morning or i make, make no i get up at quarter to five and do a gym and gym workout and then i do this and then i do that those days are starting to disappear a little bit now because <laughs> how can you sustain your energy and your knowledge and your skill set and your talent so little things that you can implement into your uh, into your behaviors and into your habits can things like meetings this is a massive one for many kind of corporate places and many kind of knowledge workers and, and things like that you get caught a lot of meetings mm. and the latest co- research is that 33 percent of meetings are useless absolutely useless right so now you know that you could potentially have a look in your calendar and go right so if i know that a third of my meetings are probably useless which ones could go and actually maybe have more time to do something else that is more valuable 73% of people that attend a Zoom call are doing something else oh, wow. at the same time that you're on a Zoom call. Wow. So, yeah. So if you are holding a meeting, um, you can look in the people that are in those little boxes and go, I know that three quarters of you are probably writing an email to someone else or even worse, you're probably on another Zoom call on another device <laughs> trying to get to as many meetings as you can be. So how do we, we're not there. You know, so we're not present. We're not listening properly. We're not attentive. And again, if you're making big decisions that impact lots of people and you're not fully present, yeah, that's not a great role model um, to be. So what I found is over the course of continuing to do what I do now is it's mindset. Mm. 
it's changing the mindset rather than the habits. The habits will come, but it's the mindset shift first. So being busy in my head now, being busy can potentially be lazy because if you are busy all of the time, it means you, you don't defend your time. It means everybody else's agenda are more important than yours. And it basically means you don't have time to learn, to evolve, to get better, to look after yourself, right? And all these things are needed to be a successful leader or talented person or subject expert. Now, you need to have time off. You need to have good sleep. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to exercise. You know, all these things are a modern version of success. And if you go around telling people you're excessively busy all the time, working 14, 15, 16 hours every day, I would challenge that and kind of go, actually, you're out of control. Yes. And if, you, if you're making decisions for other people when you're out of control, something's got to shame, uh, you know, got, something's got to shift. Um, obviously, there's, there's caveats to that where, you know, say if you're working in an industry that demands that and you need the overtime or you need the money and you know, to live, I think that's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about, you know, when you work for big corporates that have strategies and objectives and things like that, the demands on you are excessive. And, you know, the company can take you so far in regards to looking after you. Yeah. You've then got to do the rest yourself. And now it's on you. I remember there was quite the span of time where you'd go to events and you meet up with someone be like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. Everyone's so busy. And I would be swamped. Yeah. yeah, And I would actually be impressed. I was like, oh, that means that they're hard worker. They're doing it all. They're successful. And then I, my mindset completely changed. I reframed that after I read a book called do nothing by author and radio host Celeste Headley. She argues that if someone says they're busy, they're disorganized. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I love it. So you can yeah. reframe it and say, hey, you know, so now I'm more impressed when I know someone who's leading a company or has a director role at a company that's quite uh, busy in ways. And they're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm great. I'm doing well. Yeah. I've got quite the balanced lifestyle. I do this and this. I take my kids here. And it's like, wow, how do you have all this time? It's like, well, I'm intentional with how I I use my time at work and I'm I'm intentional with creating space for the most important things in my life. And that's what minimalism is all about is creating that balance. And I I have to mention you, uh, you're very active on LinkedIn. I love your posts. They're super informative. You share a lot of stats and you recently posted about how many of us define our worth and our identity by how much we accomplish. And that leads to burnout. (laughs) And it's true. It's again, people see it as a badge of honor. And, you know, there's, it's unfortunate because especially when someone loses a position, then they have to face themselves and be like, wow, like, who am I? Because they define themselves with their job and they find recognition in overworking themselves, which is super dangerous. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's shocking. And, you know, I'm still helping to helping clients coach them out, out of this, but it's, you know, I can take them so far, but it has to be a, has to be a choice. But if you've grown up where, you know, working cultures have rewarded mm-hmm. overworking, why would you stop? You know, it doesn't, the, the systems that people work and live in now, they need modernizing because you're, you're risking massive burnout. And ultimately, you know, for organizations that focus purely on bottom line, which some of them, well, a lot of them do, right? You know, we're talking about profits. You're losing your most valuable asset, which is people, due to working them too hard. 
but I mean, like I mentioned earlier, like it, it has to be, you have to take ownership and that bit about being excessively busy all the time as a bad thing and reframing it as you're out of control. I don't want to be, I don't want to be excessively busy anymore. I want to be productive. I want to add value. I want to, I want to be outcome driven, not output outcome. Mm-hmm. And so I know the impact of my work and it adds value and it's part of this machine and, you know, and you've got stories to tell and, you know, I'm you know in the midst of this, a year long experiment right now. Um, and I'm sure I'll find out in the next, you know, as we come to the end of the year, when we talk about utilization, I don't know if you've been challenged by this Kelly at all, but you know, how much are you working? Yeah. Are you at your desk X amount of days or X amount of hours? Right. So I have, again, this is a bit brave, but I've basically been working a four day work week for a mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. without telling anybody. So I do roughly around 35 to 37 and a half hours a week, but I don't work Mondays. So I have every Monday off. And what I've been doing is saying no to a lot of stuff and empowering other people to figure out the answers for themselves and find another way. If they still need help off that, come back. But I have a certain amount of clients, certain amount of teams that I support. Plus I go out and do my own thing. And I'm, plus I'm writing a book too. So I've got, I've got enough going yeah. on, right? And I want to know in the system that I'm working in, how do they value output versus outcome? Because the outcomes that I've driven have been significant but I've not worked particularly hard to do that Mm. (laughs) whereas other people have worked incredibly hard on the output volume and I want to see how the system rewards the different types of people if if I prove myself right and I get say like a nice bonus or a higher performance grade I will publish this and say I've been working less all year and the rewards are here if it fails and and I get like Chris you've really not been around what have you been doing then I know that I need to tweak my methodology a little bit but I've got this sneaking suspicion that in a system that is outcome driven will reward people for good outcomes in a system that is output driven they will reward people for just doing stuff whether it's any good or not Mm. they'll find out I predict that the results will support your your side of the story. I, I, I do. <laughs> I do. The reason why I say this is because you've eliminated the non-essential, whereas on the other side, they haven't. They're doing mm. more than they need to, right? It goes yeah. back to, I'll never forget. So in high school, my high school years, I love art. And so even if I got a written assignment, I would make it pretty. I would make it look nice. I put it into a tang. I'd make a cover page and all these things. And I'll never forget when I got to university, my professor was like, I don't want any of this. I just want the writing itself. I don't need any of this excess that's attached to it. I just want what I asked for. And I was like, I respect that. I really, really respect that. And even when it comes to scientific writing, there's no flowery language when it comes to scientific writing. And I had to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is you talk about people want to be productive. They, they want to know all these productivity hacks, but what they end up doing is they end up adding on habits when really they should be subtracting. And that's exactly what you're doing. You are subtracting, you're eliminating the non-essential and you actually talk about the power of subtraction in many ways and how addition is our default mode in all areas of our lives. And yeah, yeah. so what are one or two habits that you've subtracted from your work yeah. life to help you work more effectively? 
Yeah. So again, these are all based on science and research. So again, you can use these in any form of your kind of work life setting, right? When, and whenever you say to people, it's just backed up by science, they go, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's been some work done behind the scenes, right? We talked about meetings briefly. Back-to-back meetings are a no-no. So Microsoft did a piece of piece of work focusing on the stress on the brain with four back-to-back meetings. So they put two people in the same meeting, same four back-to-back meetings. One person went back-to-back for all four, and one person had a 10-minute break between each one. Okay. And they measured the activity on the brain, and there was a lot more stress on the brain for the person that did not have any breaks. So if you can imagine, that's just four meetings, right? So imagine if you have a whole day worth of meetings, the stress on the brain is it can be significant, whereas even a 10-minute break between each meeting allows the brain to just calm down a little bit. And you think there's like puzzle pieces everywhere. It allows it to try and piece things together. So backed up by research, do not go to back-to-back meetings if you can, all right? Five, 10-minute breaks, make it a habit. And if you create meetings, if you host these meetings, you're in control. End them early or start them a little bit later. Um, again, email is another one where lots and lots of companies have been surveyed and thousands of people have said that email is the bane of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, people are not hired to send emails. People are hired because of their skill set and their talent, but yet they spend excessive amount of time in their inbox. And um, if you, again, reframing things so we go back to back means are bad reframe that reframe the emails are the slowest form of communication in today's modern world right why are you in it you know Mm. four or five hours a day turn it off if it's important someone will ring you generally someone will ring you up if it's that important and so i don't tend to check my emails until maybe three four o'clock in the afternoon wow which is when my brain's starting to shut down a little bit it's when all my attention and my listening to my clients is starting to, to drop a little bit. So what can I do at the end of the day when I know that I'm a morning person, at the end of the day, low value stuff, admin, that only impacts me because, again, clearly it's not that important because someone would have just wronged me up for that. <laughs> so I can get around to doing the low value, the low hanging fruit towards the end of the day. Mm. But you don't have to be as extreme as that. You could literally just say, right, I'm not going to, be available on email over lunchtime or past five o'clock or you know you you set your parameters however you want but yeah those two areas is where lots of people in surveys are saying that they are the biggest time sucks ever so habitually if you can start to regain control of those areas you'll get a lot of time back in your day time to think time to reflect and you'll come up with brand new ideas and that's how you perform higher I like how you've identified that the latter part of the day is where your energy drops. And so you can just go and be responsive on email because that's an easier thing to do for you. You know, you don't need to use your best energy for that. Right. And then of course, it's important for our listeners to think about where are you, what, what part of the day are you going to be most productive? Where are you at your best? So for me, I'm the opposite at the end of the day, I have all my energy. Oh, you're a night owl. <laughs> I'm a night owl. I also am a morning person just because in my life and all my experiences, I've always had to wake up early. 
So I can really do both, but I prefer to be, you know, the dark sky, nobody's working and I'm just zoned in. That's my thing. Now, when it comes to email, I used to check email all the time and it would make me very anxious. And then I realized, wow, like the time is flying by. I'm losing so much time when I could be working on X. And so now I have a limit. So I check it first thing in the morning. I check it midday and I check it right before the end of the day. So only three times a day. So that, and that works for me, but you know, some people are probably thinking, oh man, I have to check email all the time. Start questioning that you might not have to, right? Nothing's that urgent. And again, people will ring you. It's so true. Yeah. So we have true. to see, you know, you guys heard of the NHS, right? Our National Health Service. Locally, we have accident and emergency, right? Yep. So um, there's an actual building called accident and emergency. And even in that building, not everyone is urgent. <laughs> Every case is not urgent in the place that's called an emergency. Mm-hmm. So they have a triage system where they go, oh, yeah, are you coming into accident? Is it life-threatening? If it's life-threatening, you go to right, triage one, operating theatre, um, or whatever it is you need. Next level is like, you know, it's not life-threatening, but we need to keep an eye on you. So like you go to triage two, and then um, not not life-threatening, not urgent, three. So even in this life or death situation, there is a triage process. I'm sure you can do it for your email. I'm sure you can do it for your meetings. Exactly. Start thinking about your work life and what is most urgent. And, you know, it's like, oh, is this, is this a, is this a broken bone or is this an emergency? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Emergency. Yeah. How much blood am I losing right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be grotesque. Uh, so yeah. I actually, I want to mention that in a previous interview, I also interviewed uh, Lighty Klotz. He wrote the book, Subtract. Subtract. Yeah. 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 Such a great book. And he argues that we're always piling on to do's, but we rarely think about stop doings. Yeah. And that's why I'm excited about your new book, which is called Relentless. And yeah. I'm curious, could you uh, share what inspired you to write this book or yeah. and when you plan on releasing it? Well, people can get chapter one Great. on the audiobook version of Discovery of Less. So if you want a little glimpse as to what it will sound like and feel like, the, the first part of it is on the end of Discovery of Less, the audiobook version. Um but I had a break because I was writing quite a bit and I I had to prioritize, ironically. Mm-hmm. I had to choose because I was being asked to go and do talks and do team coaching quite a lot okay. on the topic. So I had to travel around a bit, create content and, and, and do lots of kind of in-person type stuff. And I didn't have the energy to to write. Similar to how I wrote Discovery of Less, I, I thought that you just kept going kept going kept going kept going and eventually you'll find good stuff but for me it was the opposite I needed to stop and that's when the good stuff came out so I've actually paused the I thought what you call it the production of the yes. book but it's about a third done but actually a lot of the content I've used is on LinkedIn in just real short form so some of the stories some of the experiences the science the research the surveys even some of the interviews that I've done with with other people um, some of them are already on on social media so you're more than welcome to go in and engage with with some of that but I reckon it will be maybe late 2024 because with this one Kelly I was looking to get some support from a publisher mm-hmm. because the first one I did by myself I did it all by myself independent paid everything up front for myself and yeah. that's why I did it this time I was like I need some I want to be aligned with a, a publisher and go around that route and just see what that's like 
So mm-hmm. last week I had an email eventually from a publisher to say they're interested in it. Oh, um, congrats. That's amazing. Which now has given me a kick to go, right, I've got to do it now. <laughs> um, but I have the stories. I already have the stories. I've, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of excessively busy people. Um, they're all going to go in there. But it's not going to be as uh, almost like as, as a narrative storytelling piece like Discovery of Less was. There'll be There'll be smaller stories in there. But ultimately, it's a bit, a bit of a shorter book where people can just pick it up and kind of go, right, Chris, I need some help. I'm overworking. Mm. I'm struggling with my boss, overloads with stuff. Um, I don't know where to start. And so there'll be bits that people can implement straight away, experiments that you can try, and also the reasons why they're good, the reasons what the science behind it, the research behind it. And actually, again, it begins to reframe the view of busy so yeah so it's called relentless you know hopefully everyone's caught the less at the end of relentless um so yeah so keeping on brand of course uh but ultimately yeah we want we all want to work better and we want to make our working lives sustainable and add value to people because everyone's got so much skill and talent and i can't stand it when people are stuck in boring meetings not adding any value because we need you right we need we need highly skilled people to you know to to add value and to keep changing the world and making it a better place and i just worry that the the ideas um for making the world a better place are just stuck in rubbish meetings and with people that are being bogged down by so much stuff so hopefully it's a big claim but potentially it could save some lives but it could change the way people work and so you know so that's the aim That's amazing. Well, you are an example of someone who left a job that they didn't enjoy. And I love that because it, it will motivate our listeners to think about, okay, if I'm not enjoying my job, maybe I should make a change. You made that change. I mean, you ridded your life of all your excess possessions, and then you got a new position that you enjoyed. And I believe you doubled your salary. And at the same time, you've created space to become an expert in simplicity and help people simplify their work lives, which is incredible. You speak with audiences around the world and, you know, you you also have a book in in the works, right? It's amazing. But, you know, it just goes to show when you work on your own, you have to prioritize things. And, you know, the book will be even meatier, to be honest. There'll be more meat. There'll be more studies, more (laughs) more stats to support all of your claims, which which makes me even more excited. You'll have more time. And I'm just thinking about those who are listening, who may be in a job that they're not enjoying, you know, and they just feel overwhelmed and it's just, they're burnt out. I'm curious what advice you would give them. Maybe they're stuck in the comfort zone and they fear leaving, but that's what they truly know that they should do. Talk to me. (laughs) Um, Reach out, send me a message. Um, There's the, we, I do a lot of career coaching with, with clients like this around, stuckness you know I, I i'm too worried to leave a role uh it's too scary pays the bills there's, there's so many nuances in regards to kind of uncovering burnout actually even labeling it you mm. know, it can be a tricky thing for some people because they might just feel that they're just tired you're burnt out mate <laughs> you're 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 done you're coming to the end of you know new ideas if you know your creativity is starting to drop and you're you know, not getting good sleep and you know, decisions are, are not great. Um, talk to me. Mm. What I do, what I do for a living, reach out and let's chat about your particular situation. But I would say in every 
well, not every, I'd say about 95% of, of roles that are in the corporate setting or a knowledge worker setting, or maybe even like retail and, and various other industries, mm-hmm. there's stuff in there that adds no value whatsoever, but you do it anyway. Yeah. What is it? And highlight that. And real, just, just do some experimentation. You know, will people really miss it if you don't do a thing for a week? Why does every meet, you know, a catch up have to have to happen every Monday at three o'clock? Mm-hmm. Yeah, start to just play around with the habits and the behaviors that have formed over over many years in the workplace setting. You know, why do you have a catch up with every single team member for half an hour every day? Yeah, is that what they want? Mm-hmm. Who's asked? Have you asked them? <laughs> you know, these you know, there's so many little bits and pieces in our working lives that we could shift and change find one and experiment with it a couple of weeks it's not going to change the world it's not you know no one's going to die so just try some stuff see what happens what you might find is there is very little negative consequence to that experiment and what i've found with all of my clients is when they've done experiments they found so much positive impacts in their life that mm-hmm. they've made it normal so i'll give you a quick one one i'm working with at the moment who is a very very senior leader it was the obligation to sign things off. It's just, that's my, it's like, that's my job. I have to sign stuff off. So we challenged that. We go, right, for two weeks, I'm not going to sign anything off. So in week one, his team were like, oh my God, my safety net has gone. What do I do? So they were more detailed. They spent more time because they knew that the accountability had shifted from the boss to the expert. Uh-huh. So the team were now empowered to be accountable for their own work. It led to better quality outputs outcomes and everybody got time back because the leader wasn't the blocker anymore having to sift through a massive pile of stuff to sign off and the boss got time back because he wasn't signing anything off and he trusted the team to do it Ah. so in that that two weeks that was the findings that everybody had literally hours back in their week because of this tiny little shift yes of course the consequence of that was Maybe the quality wasn't as good on week one, mm-hmm. but long term, everybody's leveled up. Everyone thought, oh, okay, right, I'm accountable now. I've got to make sure I spend more time on this and and maybe check with my peers and give it to my peer and my colleague to give it a once over before I submit the thing, right? And there's loads of those little tiny experiments that you can do to just play around with and see what happens. And those who are working on this report, for example, they probably know what his revisions probably are going to be because they've been there before. So now yeah. they're coming back to the drawing board. Okay, look, we're going to make this exactly how we think that he would want it. And we can share it with our colleagues to do a one over. And they're they're saving time probably because the renovations or when he uh, reviewed it, he probably had so many questions or so many asks that would cause them to have to spend more time on this report. Right. So that's yeah. interesting. And of course it was all urgent, right? <laughs> or, oh, you know, yeah. the false, the false urgency was, was there. So again, deadlines, where did the deadline come from? Who made it up? It, you know, they just come out of nowhere. Sometimes I've had one this week where someone said, oh, can you get this to me by the end of the day? And they're like, why is that? And I was like, I'm going on holiday tomorrow. <gasps> oh, right. Not be- it's not because it, it was needed. It's because the other person wanted to basically just shut down that bit of work before they went on holiday. What a nice human. I know, right? If you can get it done, I'm going, I'm going on a yacht, I'm going on a cruise. So if you can sort that out before I go, that'd be great. So these types of little things that 
become normal mm-hmm. and we don't question that drives the overwork and the lack of space and when you create a bit more space you have opportunity and it all comes back Kelly to that decluttering that letting go you know letting go of you know what once served us and no longer serves us anymore you know, it's mm-hmm. letting go and moving on and redesigning a new normal but in a work setting and you know I've said no to a few meetings recently and I challenged a client of mine to do the same so he was invited to 15 meetings a week and again just as an experiment he declined all of them just to see what would happen <laughs> only one only one come back and said oh we really need you in this one he went okay ah, yes <laughs> yeah so next time I mean let's just say I'm your client I would ask hey do you need me you can even just say, do you need me before you even decline? You know, do you need yeah. me on this one? Yeah. 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 And it's a safety thing, you know, you know, as uh, we've, we've seen your leaders as well, they feel an obligation to go to these things to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause if, you know, what happens if I don't get seen, would that be a bad thing? Will people perceive me as not caring? I'll tell you the truth now. Yeah. No one's got the time to think about what you're doing. It's they're too true. busy thinking about what they're doing. Um, it's true. <laughs> and it comes back to out, outcomes. You know, if you're creating great outcomes that add value, people will recognize you. And um, regardless of your, if you're working, you know, 15 hours a day or if you're working eight, you know, add value. That's the, the bottom line. Does the thing I'm doing add value? If it doesn't, consider stop doing it. So if there was one habit our listeners could adopt today, like one crucial key habit they could adopt to do less and create better results, what would that be? Ask more questions. So rather than a default, go, yeah, I'll do it. Understand why the thing needs to get done. Yes. What the real deadline is. And has it been done before? And again, this is, I've found this personally, is that we love to just recreate the wheel. With big businesses, they can work in silos. So, you know, they won't won't necessarily ask or be aware of what other departments are doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be, oh, can you create a, I need a new, platform for our staff to learn cool no problem has anyone else done this Mm. oh i'm not sure okay let's let's find out that first because then we can probably just reuse what they've done where's this coming from what's the priority now so yeah better get better at asking good questions you really will start to then uncover the reality of some of the work that comes your way it's also easier than just saying no I wish saying no was so much easier. Right. So the art of saying no is a session I run. And um, we talk about a flat no is can be quite almost it feels like rejection, right? It feels like I've just been rejected. Right. (laughs) But these are it's the art of yeah, asking better questions. I can't I can't do that. But what I can do is I can't do that by that date, but I can probably do it by the end of the month. You Mm -hmm. know, these negotiation kind of parts of the spectrum of no create more discipline and it creates that boundary setting that we were talking about and honestly if you're if you're able to have more better conversations with people about delivery of things the relationship will get better and mm-hmm. um, next time they come to you kelly and they say oh and they know that they're going to get questioned they're going to come back to you with more facts more information and actually a real reason why this piece of work is important because they know they don't have those answers for you. Well, until you get the answers, I can't really start anything because I don't know how important it is and where it's come from and actually what the real deadline is. So, so once you get that for me, then then I can check again. Or they know that I'm going to ask those questions so they come prepared next time. 
There you go. <laughs> there you go. So once you release your book, Relentless, how are you hoping to impact your readers? Yeah, just going into workplaces, I think, and actually doing proper workshops, which I've done a few this year, where we really get into the guts of some of the work that the teams are doing. And me playing that role of this independent disruptor, going, you know, how does that thing add value? And what could you drop for a week? What could you try? And and we basically just workshop it and we workshop it. And, you know, hopefully by the end of a period of time, you come out and you have less on your plate. But the things you do work on are high impact. So, yeah, so that's the kind of that's the kind of plan to to impact people that can maybe just take the, the snippets out of the book, implement them in their own work or bring it further afield and go, actually, I, I manage a team or I run a whole department and sickness is a problem productivity is a problem we're still not performing great and I think it might be because we're doing rubbish work Mm. that's where I come in help out and then say see you later and you guys can create your own new normal ah well said you know what would be great is in your book you insert at the end share your story with me and then you had all these stories sent to you that would be so great there we go I'll be like Kelly Foss said, um, <laughs> what Kelly said, but some of the, um, the case studies, I mean, I've got so many stories and case studies already. I'd love to get more. One particular guy that I interviewed, he's retired now, but he was an investment banker mm-hmm. and he worked so hard. He had five heart attacks. And oh. what the last one he had was whilst he was on going on holiday to Spain and they wouldn't let him on the flight. And so he spoke to his doctor and, the doctor said you've got you've got to slow down like you've you're you're working far too much like I'm surprised you're not dead by now yeah so he had operation had everything fixed and then and then slowed down and now he's so I've interviewed him so his case study will be in the book um, about kind of you know what and he and really annoyed his wife because his wife couldn't go on holiday she had to go to the hospital instead (laughs) um so he laughs at it now but he's like I look back and you know what we were doing with them was ridiculous. It was unsustainable. And that, and he was like saying, I'm not surprised that as a leader, the things I had to deal with weren't work-related. They weren't like career progression conversations. They weren't, oh, this is a thing you need to learn or recognition. There was addiction. It was mental health problems, relationship problems. He said the amount of people that I had with drug problems that cheated on their wives was incredible. He goes, I wow. became a counsellor and so these these are the levels we're talking about now where it's we're we're working so much that we are compromising everything else and what for a spreadsheet a powerpoint (laughs) so it's just trying to you know uncover that uncover that truth and allow people to work a little bit more sustainably by using what we love minimalism so Usually I'd be shocked by that mental burnout that you just shared with me, the emotional burnout. I just spoke with someone who works in a very, very high stress, fast paced work environment. And I was like, wow, you must be physically burnt out. And he goes, no, emotionally. Yeah. Like, There's so much that goes on internally. It's just, that is not necessary. It's not, like, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the work. It's everybody's personal lives within the workplace. So yeah. that's a lot yeah, as sure. well. You know, yeah. it's a combination of things. Oh, I, I really am excited to, to read this book one day because that's a great story. 
And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of relatable stories in there that hopefully people can, you know, step back and say, Hey, like reflect on their own lives. But like, is this me too? And Hey, maybe I can avoid this. Right. Yeah. And you know, the responsibilities of, of leaders today in a post pandemic world is to look after your people. Um, and again, like I mentioned earlier on, we've just had a, a 10 year high in sickness. Now, are you really a good leader if your people are overworking and you're part of the problem? You know, I would question question that. And there's loads of there's, there's loads of layers, Kelly, in regards to unlearning the habits and behaviours of the past, the successes that have got us here. They've got us here, but that it's just got us here. Like what we now need to do is something very very different. We now need to focus on less but better. And, and that it's not just in work. We're doing it in our home lives because we can't keep consuming. Yes. We can't keep spending. We, you know, we have a cost of living crisis. We can't keep spending, right? Everything is going up. Mm-hmm. And when it comes down to the bottom line of the climate, we cannot keep consuming and using all of the time. So it all links. And so, yeah, so if you can create a, a sustainable approach to your work, probably everything else will probably fit nicely into place. And in just your everyday life, you, you shared also in your talk at TEDx halt that the journal of positive psychology found a link between those that are a part of the minimalist movement have an increase in well-being. I was like, yes. How are you, how are you feeling? Are you feeling good? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. You know, I, I used to work in a work environment where I did challenge the status quo and it worked in my favor. It took a long time. Things weren't green lit immediately, but eventually they were. And people really appreciated it and started respecting me more. And now I work on my own and, you know, I'm still working in a team environment. And so I have to set those boundaries, but it's become a lot easier for me to do so. And I'm more respected because I can be myself. I can communicate. I can ask questions. So hopefully our listeners today feel motivated by all your insights. So thank you so much, Chris. This is fantastic. And I hope that we have a third discussion when you release your next book. It'd be amazing. And again, it's called Relentless. And your first book is called Discovery of Less. And you can get the first chapter if you purchase that. Is it audiobook or physical book? Uh, so yeah, so if you get the Discoverless audiobook, chapter mm-hmm. one of Relentless is at the end of that. So I mean, if you just want to fast forward and just get the end of it, it's fine. If you've got Spotify, I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure if it, what it's like in Canada, but in the UK, they've just launched a an audiobook section. So if you have Spotify Premium, so you already pay to listen to your music, you can get 15 hours of audiobooks for free. Wow. Okay. So hopefully that's the same in Canada and the States. But check if you've got a Spotify premium, search for Discovery for Less. Like you can probably listen to it for nothing. So oh. enjoy it. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. And where can our listeners find you? So generally, I've, I only work on two social media sites now. So Instagram and LinkedIn are my, my, my two places. So I've kind of ditched Twitter and Facebook's gone. Um, so message me on either of those two platforms. I'd love to connect and hear your stories as well, because, you know, there's still space in Relentless. There's still blank pages that need to be filled with people's stories. So if you have a story to tell um, you or a friend or family member has been you know, burnt out or working on stuff that is just really low value and you've not been able to shift it. I'd love to hear from you because we've, you know, I'm still writing. No, it's still in production. So, you know, if you want, if you have stories to tell, I'd love to hear them. 
Uh, well, we have a very engaged audience, so I'm sure you'll hear from some people for sure, for sure, Amazing. including myself, maybe. <laughs> well, don't rule it out. Don't rule it out. Well, thanks so much, Chris, and good luck with your writing and everything that you do. Thank you so much, Kelly. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation about applying minimalism at work with simplicity coach and author, Chris Lovett. And I hope that you are also feeling inspired to ask more questions at work so that you can start doing less and creating better results. And if you haven't yet listened to my first conversation with Chris, please check out the link in our show notes to find episode 107 titled own less and live more where Chris details his journey of letting go of his excess possessions and all of the great rewards that he gained. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media or send it to a friend who you know would take a lot of value from it. And as always, you can learn more about us on our website at mastersimplicity.com, where you can also find our closet decluttering courses, closet decluttering e-guide, and links to discounts from our dedicated partners, BetterHelp and Biome. And lastly, if you are enjoying this podcast, please kindly send us a kind rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your ratings and reviews help our podcast grow and help us bring on more exciting guests like Chris. So thanks in advance and thanks to all of you who have already taken the time to do so. We really, really appreciate it. So thanks again for listening and I will speak with you soon. Bye-bye.